everybody. You are listening to Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. I'm Johnny Morrison, and with us, as always, is your co-host, Christian Surge. How are you, Johnny? Welcome, everyone. Each week and now for the next 23 minutes, we're going to have a conversation about culture, current event, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum, both smart and dumb, for you to decide. Which one is smart or which one is dumb? Exactly. Cause we or used to which one you are as a listener or... Well, I think the first one bet more than the second because I think okay, most of the great. listeners are smart. Yeah, I think so. All of you, all of you that listen are smart, not just some of you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so <laughs> insulting a few very specific listeners, but that one guy, you know who you are. I do now, I'm talking to one of the listeners, but right. you might have just proved something too. Well, I claim the dumb guy because uh, I just sometimes look at things very simply, and sometimes that's not the best way. Just like uh, when the vaccination started coming out, my first thought was, oh, this is uh, a good time for the rich to get involved. And yeah, Mm. people who are uh, at most at risk are going to get some of it, but there's going to be lots of corruption. People are going to steal the vaccine. People are going to hold on to it or acquire it privately. And it has gone to new heights. There's a little article uh, called The Vaccinated Class. Uh, a private company got a hold of some some vaccinations and they would allow people to book three-week vacation to their private club and they would give mm. them the vaccine so that they were able to get the first dose and the last dose. They claimed you had to be 65, but the club itself doesn't uh, enforce that rule. So here we are, vaccination time. The rich are getting it. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, isn't that, that's always the truth though, right? Like, Anytime there's a moment in society for the rich to use their wealth in a way that is like beneficial to them and takes away from those who suffer the most or those who are at the front line, it's like you should just assume that's that's what's happening and it is going to happen. You know, and I, I, I tend to wonder to myself if I had the money, would I do it? And I think I would mm. sometimes. Well, that's I like that honesty. I appreciate the honesty. Well, think about it when. You have enough money to spend four or $500 a night on a hotel room. You don't really mm-hmm. think twice. You might go, oh, yeah, that's a lot. But we're going to stay there because we're not going to stay at a Motel 6 because that's disgusting. Mm-hmm. But when you only have $69 in your pocket and you're like, oh, I just need a bed. I have 69 bucks. I, that's expensive to spend all of your money on a, a hotel for the night. So mm-hmm. I kind of wonder what I would do, right? Like if I had enough money where it didn't matter, where I could book that three-week vacation at a club, you know, we're tired of being in the house. We're tired of wearing masks. Some of us have had COVID. Some of us haven't. Uh, We book the trip, book the vacation. I work from an amazing Mm -hmm. club. I have the money. They give me the vaccine. Why not? Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's a, that's a true point. Like when you live in certain stratas of society, your view and your lens of life is adjusted. And so you make different decisions, make different purchasing decisions. And I think it's even fair to say that it is not, it's not like bad intentions on behalf of people who make those kinds of decisions. Like you're act, you're like acting out of the position that you're in. Like you see out of that lens. So you're acting out of that position. What now it doesn't mean it's good that it's happening, but you, you know, I don't know that it's the 
like the fault necessarily of that person who decided to go to the club and purchase the vaccine, though it shouldn't be happening. Yeah, I agree. You know, I have a billionaire friend and not many billionaire friends, but one and just one, just one. And the way that he talks about, you know, motorcycles or when we have a conversation, knowing someone in high society or someone famous when I act surprised that he knows so-and-so, he's like, well, of course huh. I know so-and-so. Right? Of, co- yeah. of course I know Dan Aykroyd. What, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's totally mad. Of, of, of course I know the guy who owns NBC. What, what, what do you mean? You know, like, and, uh-huh. and it's just so far out there for me that I feel like my perspective, sometimes I go, gosh, is my perspective skewed? And I go, no, 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 no. <laughs> His perspective is skewed. Mm-hmm. I think. But occasionally he'll be like, hey, Christian, a dollar bill has never given me a hug. And while I can rent out the Detroit motorway to, to drive a motorcycle or a car, that's a lot of money to most mm-hmm. people. But to him, it's not. So mm-hmm. speaking of billionaires, yeah. there's a lot of, lot of things going on this week uh, with GameStop, hedge funds, and Elon Musk, and stocks, and bankruptcy. Did you read this article? Mm-hmm. I did. Very good. So you all know what I'm talking about. When you're listening to this podcast on Monday morning, this may be old news, but I think what's really interesting about this is I don't know much about hedge funds other than some of the smart people in my life pretty much call them syndicate criminal organizations, <laughs> right? These large funds that go in and can falsely increase the value of a stock by throwing money at it and then doing Mm -hmm. a short sale to where then they can kind of sell it at a lower price, give the stock back, and then make the money. Mm -hmm. And that's what they do. In fact, this is a really interesting article because while everyone is saying our economy can't take it, our economy is getting worse, the stock market, which it is, the stock market is soaring, it's booming, it's making money. And so I'm like, there's a disconnect here. There's a disconnect Mm -hmm. between the economy and the stock market. And for some reason, politicians want us to believe that the stock market really affects Mm us. Mm -hmm. And I think this really stems to the 80s politics of Ronald Reagan. I'll explain why. You probably know much more about the hedge funds, but I found this little article and it explained it to me like this. It says, let's say I want to short XYZ, which has a current price of $10. I borrow one share and sell it immediately at $10. I have $10 now, but I owe my broker the one share I borrowed. Then let's say the price of XYZ drops to $7. I now decide to cover or buy it back my short position and buy one share at $7 and return the one borrowed share to my broker. I made 10 bucks when I sold and I only had to pay $7 to buy it back lower. So my profit is $3. And this is mm-hmm. what the hedge fund was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And the Reddit guys, the Redditors, a big group of them decided to go into GameStop, a failing business because of, you know, video games are going all online and you're downloading them now. It's, they're struggling. And they essentially inflated the, the price of GameStop from $30 to $346, mm-hmm. bankrupting one of the largest hedge, hedge funds. They lost $13 billion, and they uh, claimed bankruptcy. Of course, politicians, some of the Republican lawmakers actually are saying, uh, this is illegal, you can't do it. And the response was, this is what you guys do all, yeah, all the, the time. time. 
And I think this stems back to Ronald Reagan when he deregulated the stock market mm. and allowed these kinds of things to happen. So mm -hmm. I guess the question is, did the hedge fund get what they deserve, right? Did they just get what they deserve? Like part of me is like, yeah, you got what you deserve. You go bankrupt, right? And w why does the stock market effect have so much effect on us? Mm -hmm. Or does it really? Yeah. And the third question is, should we really set our hearts on revenge? Like, should we really be like, <laughs> sock it to those hedge fund guys? <laughs> I love it. So, uh, okay. So the three questions, what was the first one? Did the hedge funders get what they deserve? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love it. Yeah. I think, I think that is both the first and the second question or the third question you asked is like, did they get what they deserved? And should we set our hearts on revenge? Um, I would say like that is what the financial system deserves. And I don't even know that I would call it revenge. I would say that there is something about it that is like a, a bit of like a guerrilla justice that is happening in the movement because you know, like so many, so many big entities have been hit by like online trolling, basically, mm -hmm. you know, like the movie industry has like even, you know, what it was it like, even in small ways, like the editing for Sonic the Hedgehog movie was changed because of online trolling <laughs> or like, um, you know, large corporations have been hit in multiple ways, but the Wall Street has been a difficult one because the barrier to entry is higher. So it was like, it was protected from the democratization that the internet brought to so many other industries. Movie industry got got disrupted. Television's been disrupted. Music. Journalism online. Music. Oh yeah, right. So many things have been disrupted, but Wall Street really had it because the barrier to entry is still really high. But then through apps like Robinhood, you know, like where you just do the investing from your phone and you can buy small amounts of like larger loans. You can just do it at whatever you want. You don't have to be professional. You don't have to be on Wall Street. All of a sudden these things started lowering the barrier to entry and Wall Street got hit by it. And I think that's totally appropriate. Like it, it is the moment where regular humans are trying to take back a, a bit of power from Wall Street bankers, from hedge funds, and that is always going to feel a bit disruptive, but that's where the power and money actually belongs in the hand of just like regular folks, not so isolated and the people who can take three weeks vaccine vacations. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so regular folks wanting to take up some power back, you know, yep. someone could argue that regular folks wanted to take some power back from the Capitol a couple weeks ago. That's true. You could. So <clears throat> that's a good, that's actually a really good segue or, or like a, or a question, which is like, when is it right and when is it wrong? Yeah. Um, and I would say like when it's violent, that's in and of itself always wrong. And I would also say that like, so there's a, there's a French philosopher, you can ding a bell or something right there, <laughs> named um, Michel de Certeau, who talked about like, how do you push back against an institution that's so much larger than you? Mm. So if you're like a factory worker, uh, that's kind of in the air that he's writing. If you're a factory worker, you work in a factory, it overworks you, it makes you make the widget over and over and over again, you have no power in the factory, what do you do? And he used this term that I've always thought was really cool, which is um, is the French word bricolage, which we use today to talk about art that's made from like scraps. Hmm. Like you would do bricolage if you were like, I got some paint, I got a canvas, I've got like a bunch of rubber, and I'm going to make a statue, something weird. You go like, bricolage, you're putting things together. And he would say, you, that's like the, the chief thing that you're trying to do if you're a regular person trying to push back against an institution that's much larger than you, is you're trying to use the tools at hand and repurpose those tools for your own sake or for the sake of your community um, that are actually the, the tools that the institution itself uses against you. So like if you 
work at a factory, you you take a part and you go home and you make a garden out of that part or whatever. That would be like a form of bricolage. And I feel like this is a great moment of that where it's like they're taking the tools that have often been used to keep power out of the hands of the regular folk, wielding those tools against the institution of power in a non-coercive, non-violent way, and it disrupts the thing, right? And not, and not in a way that matters. That Like the, the company that declared bankruptcy got a a stimulus bonus already from like it's it's backing billionaires. So right. it's like the, there's so much money there. Nothing bad happened to those people anyways. Right. They sought protection and they've already had, yeah. you know, three billion dollars, you know, bailout probably in 2008 as well. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm really happy for the Redditors, and maybe I'm just a little bit jealous <laughs> because I wanted yeah. to get in on <laughs> yeah, it totally. too. Um, there was a guy, there was a, an evangelical. Now, in this pandemic, I feel like uh, white evangelicals have just been represented the worst because they have been some of the worst people. They yeah. reacted in the what I consider the least caring way and just downright uh, terrible. Like, and I just sometimes mm-hmm. I just go, oh. How how do I change the stigma now? You know, as as a mm-hmm. as a white male Christian. But at the end of this article, Justin Speak is twenty seven, evangelical pastor in California. They got in on this GameStop and uh, made seventeen hundred dollars off GameStop in the past week. And their quote at the very end was, "There's a catharsis to actually making money off their pain a little bit." Right, they've got some satisfaction making money mm. off their pain. But he said, "My wife put it more bluntly: eat the rich." Mm-hmm. So, like, there's some revenge in their hearts there. Sure. And I am familiar with feeling like I want revenge. I'm familiar with that feeling. I know what it feels like. I know uh, when I I feel like I want to take revenge, and it's a very scary uh, kind of emotion that you go through, and it's it's very inward. And it brings to light, like, man, I, sh- I should look at myself, what I'm doing. If I'm feeling this way, I really need to look at what's going on. So, no, I think, I mean, I think that's a good thing to name, Christian. Like, like I believe that what happened can be a, a moment of like even restorative justice. Mm. But, like, what makes it different than the Capitol to me is violence. But what makes it different than like online alt right trolling? And I think even the difference there is like, does the doxing and the trolling so directly target individuals, does it so tar- tar- target like their own lives, their families versus the institutions uh, and the epicenters of power that that these people are a part of, which means that they're going to be affected. Mm-hmm. But like, that's what I think I like this moment is it goes for institutions and the way in which these institutions play games that then actually really impact real people. Mm. And so then it was this way to creatively push back against the institutions. But not that that's the only line, but I think when the question you just asked or the statement you just made, like what is one of the lines? And that feels like one of them. Is it, is it going after humans individually? Mm -hmm. Is it violent towards those Mm -hmm. humans? Um, And is it using, and then here's the other one. Um, Fascists always have the advantage of having the semi support of, state and local power, which is like, right, the storming of the Capitol, part of the reason it works is because police don't stop them. Right. Um, and so then if, so then, then that you, you go after people, it's violent and coercive and you're supported by the institutions and state governments. Well, those are, those are three good rubrics. If, if that, so. if you're on that team, something is wrong. Yeah. I think that's a cold blooded revenge. Like that, those are vengeful feelings. <laughs> yeah. I think that draws the line right there. That's well said, Johnny. I, 
I think that if we can do it again, I just want to be on the GameStop side. Just let me, <laughs> just let me, let me be there. <laughs> let me be one of the Redditors. No, it, there's a big part of me that is really happy that uh, we've been able to insert ourselves into the stock market because it is something that, mm -hmm. like you said, it's a high barrier entry that we just haven't been able to crack. And it does its own thing regardless of what the world does. It is a mm -hmm. symbol of the rich and powerful. Totally. And it's something that we have yet to be able to go in and break. And now we're finally seeing that we can actually enter into that contest and be a competitor. Yes. And I love it. I actually love it. Yep. Yeah. I love that. That's a great way of saying it too. Like we can get in there, be a competitor and hopefully kind of begin to tear it down a bit. Yeah. Well, speaking of tearing things down, I, yeah, I want to talk about the filibuster. Um, I received a text actually asking us to talk about the filibuster and then it's been in the news a lot recently, mainly because the Biden administration and the Democratic Congress has these plans that they would really like to pass. So they would really like to do a voting rights amendment to update the one that was so torn down. Um, HR1, which is a large democracy reform, Biden's immigration plan, uh, Biden's climate change plan. These are huge things that, that really could actually have some massive impact on the United States, but they probably won't pass because the Senate is split right down the middle with Kamala Harris being the uh, majority vote for the Democrats, but then they can just get filibustered by the Republicans. And so the debate that's happening right now, and the question is, should Dems change the filibuster rules mm. so that they can pass this massive legislation, but knowing that if they do so, it will lead to pretty substantial consequences. Um, so I thought maybe it would be helpful. Um, you can tell me, you can tell me to stop, but I, 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 I gathered some information. I thought it may be helpful to do a little bit of like a, just a history on the filibuster because I, this was helpful to me as I was processing through this decision. So can I give you, one, can I stop you though? And just give you, yeah, go I'm ahead. starting, I start to feel vengeful feelings when we talk about the filibuster. Yeah. And just the one thing, like when I think about the idea of changing the filibuster laws, one side of me says, yeah, the Republicans would do it or yeah, they mm -hmm. would do it. And then the other side is, I don't know if the Democrats have a strong enough, like, vengeful side to actually do it. I don't think they, mm. I think they care enough about people, they probably won't do it. And so I'll, I'm torn mm. because I'm well, competitive. to that point, to that point, Dems have done it. Oh, they did? Um, yeah. So, <clears throat> so here's, here's some interesting, th interesting things. One, just to note that one of the most famous filibuster cases was Strong Thurman, uh, who filibustered civil rights. So the... The use of the filibuster is a long history of um, blocking progressive policy agendas. Here's an interesting thing, though. In the 1970s, the, the Senate changed the filibuster rule so that you don't actually have to do the filibusting yourself. You don't have to physically be present to filibuster. So Ted Cruz can say, I challenge the bill. And if Democrats don't have enough to overwhelm with a majority vote, um, to like a 60 vote, which means 10 more than they have, or nine more if you count Kamala Harris, then it's just blocked and there's nothing else you can do. But that changed in the 1970s. Before that, you had to get on the floor and do the speeches. And as soon as you stopped doing the speeches, the other, how the other, like the Dems or the mm. GOP could rush in and, and pass a bill. So we've not always had this like kind of weird filibuster law. The only way to overcome the filibuster is with a 60 vote majority, which has also not always been true. <laughs> it used to be 65 wow. and it's been lowered before and could potentially be lowered again. 
Let's just do it to 52 so that we can get Mitt Romney. Yeah, which you could do. Like you could 100% do that. You could do 51 if you wanted. Yeah. Most bills, this is another thing, most bills are subject to filibuster um, except for budget reconciliation. So sometimes you'll hear um, pundits or congressional leaders talking about passing something through budget reconciliation, which means connecting it directly to government budgets because budgets are so important that they're not subject to filibuster. Hmm. In 2013, the Dems took what, what is often referred to as the nuclear option, people use this language a lot, to end the filibuster for Obama's lower court nominees. And this is, I didn't know this, this is fascinating. 50% of America's filibusters, historic filibusters, occurred in four years of the Obama administration what? by the, the Republicans blocking Obama um, nominees for lower courts primarily, which is why Senator um, Harry Reid use the quote-unquote nuclear option to get rid of the filibuster for lower court nominees. Wow. Then in 2017, Republicans did the same with Supreme Court nominees. So it was mm. lower courts first, so Dems did it first, then Republicans did it in 2017, and now we're in the spot where Dems could potentially change the rules again to just a straight majority vote. So what would happen is like you could get rid of the filibuster, take the nuclear option, and have a majority vote. Um, so 51 would overcome, or you could change the rules. So people actually have to physically be on the ground and do the filibuster. Um, or like we go to 51 votes is a majority and that overcomes it or 55 or something. I think they should change the rules. So that like, like a dance contest, right? Like yeah. longest dance, like as soon as you stop dancing, they can vote. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, Dems will win that for sure. It's younger people, <laughs> just like younger. And the only other thing that I that is interesting is that Joe Manchin, who's a Democrat from West Virginia, and Kristen Sinema, who's a Democrat from Arizona, have said on record that they would not vote to remove the filibuster. So I, Dems don't have the votes to just straight remove it, but neither Joe or Sinema have said that they wouldn't vote to change the rules hmm. of the filibuster. So wait, all of that. Wait, okay. is, are Joe and Kristen dating? They are not dating. Okay. They are just senators from different states. Huh. Okay. Just curious. You know, like they get on the same team. They're on the same team. That's cool. They are on the same team. Um, that's true. They're from conservative states. Uh, they, you know. So all of that to say, the debate that's happening right now is should Dems try to change the filibuster rule? So with all of that context, Christian, what do you think? Do you think that Democrats should try and get rid of the filibuster or keep it? Well, when the pendulum swings, we may sing a different tune or they may sing a different tune, just like in mm -hmm. the 2002 elections with Al Gore and, and Bush, where Al Gore challenged the vote in Florida, made them recount, mm -hmm. made up lawsuits, did everything he could legally, and then finally conceded on January 6th, the main difference there. He tried to respect that process, but... At that point, you know, Republicans were going crazy, just saying you know, all the mm -hmm. things that the Democrats were saying about Trump. So mm -hmm. I think I like the dance contest filibuster. I think that they should have to dance. Yeah, I'm a fan of that. Uh, yeah. And, and as soon as they stop dancing, uh, and I, I don't think they should be able to just announce it. Like, I'm filibustering. I'm challenging it. You have to get 60% uh -huh. or whatever. I think maybe if they say, all right, um, if you want to just challenge it, we only have to get the majority or one more than the majority. But if you're actually going to dance, then you can filibuster. And as soon as you stop talking, we're in. 
I mean, doesn't that seem reasonable? I think that's a better rule, yeah. It's crazy that you can filibuster and not be speaking. Like, yeah. that's the whole point of this thing. Now it's just like a, it's just an ultimate, like, for lack of a better word, Trump card. Yeah, I don't like that word anymore. So, no, yeah. <laughs> did they already pass something? Is that what you're telling me? No, but it is a debate, right? Because there's the more progressive members of the Democratic Party are really for it. Uh, a lot of pundits are wrestling with it. Schumer has not taken it off the table of like a possible option. And McConnell has warned a few times, like, this is not going to go well if you take it off the Like, McConnell has basically said, if you remove the filibuster, just know that in two years, as elections go, there's a good chance that I'm um, Senate Majority Leader again, and I'm going to use the hell out of yeah, that. Yeah, I'm going to pass every lame-ass law and whatever I can yeah. do to screw up this country. Ugh. So, which is, you know, that's your point of the back and forth. Like, that's true. But I think, here's what, here's what I think is... is is, is hard for me about it. One is I want big legislation passed, like v, like the Voting Rights Amendment and HR1 could help Democrats, which is, I don't care about Democrats that much, but I do care about some of the progressive policies, but it could help more progressive politicians and more people get the vote because they're, they're democracy reformations. Mm -hmm. So you could help sway things in terms of what the majority is with those pieces of legislation. And then... Like, here's the thing I think I wrestle with is don't we want the Senate to vote on a majority not be held up by a piece of legislation or a piece of a rule in the House that has so much power, mm -hmm. right? Because like right now, it means that a majority actually doesn't get the vote. Mm -hmm. You have to have a, basically super. a super majority to get the vote. And that actually feels like it's a affront to democracy at some level. Um, I think if it changes and with all the visibility that this country has had into our democracy, into our constitutional republic that practices democracy in just about every <laughs> part of it. I think that we should change, we should take that trump card away mm. and we should allow the majority to, to rule. I don't know. It's, I don't know. I don't want the pendulum to swing back and slap me in the butt. Yeah. You know, I just don't want to, I don't want that to happen, but I do want do more caring policies for people. And that's yeah. the hard part. Yes. So one of the arguments that people have used to say that you shouldn't remove the filibuster and I, and I don't know that I buy it, but I, I think it would be interesting to talk about with you. Do you think that the filibuster in place encourages bipartisanship because to pass a bill, you have to get, hypothetically nine right now Republicans if you're a Democrat or 10 Democrats if you're a Republican? Do you think it encourages bipartisanship? Well, the question I want to know is have we ever gotten nine? And how many <laughs> how many times do we get nine? Like we saw five yeah. uh, come over to impeach Trump in the House, right? Or eight or something. We didn't see nine. We didn't see 10. Can we ever get that much? Yeah. And I don't know if that's the the level or the line of which we should cross in order to say the filibuster works or it doesn't. But man, I don't know. That's a hard question. Yeah. I don't, and I think I feel similar where it's like, I don't know that it will encourage bipartisanship. I don't, it didn't under Trump. It didn't under Obama. Like we had the filibuster in place and it wasn't encouraging bipartisanship. So why should we assume that keeping it in place will uh, prevent further unraveling yeah. of bipartisanship? Especially when historically it's not always played out this way. Yeah, and you bring a good, a good point. Encouraging bipartisan, partisan, I can't even say that word. See, bipartisanism. If we don't do something as a people to dilute the algorithm of making us the product, 
mm. with everything that we see just encouraging and our biases and confirming our biases, bipartisanism is just a word that we shouldn't ever say yeah. again, which probably shouldn't ever say again anyway, because it's too long. <laughs> but if we don't do something about that, so I mean, I can only imagine if I'm watching ads or uh, the algorithm is feeding me uh, things that just continually enrage me and, and push me to one side or the other, everybody else is. So I think there's even a bigger mm -hmm. question on how do we get bipartisan. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, yeah, that's a good point, Christian. Like, is trying to preserve the filibuster really the, the, that, is that really the issue that is stopping us from being a unified nation, right. uh, uh, doing bipartisan, um, like agenda items, or is it, that's just a bigger question and it can't be solved with a filibuster and we should try to liberate our democratic processes, get rid of the filibuster, and then fix bipartisanship somewhere else. Yeah, or at least... That's a good point. Or at least make the dance card again, right? I, I'm for the dance yeah, card. Yeah, yeah, add the dance back. Give us the dance card back, make us dance, and once we stop, we can vote. I think that's a, a fair price. Sanders, he would just like sit in his chair and just tap his one foot just for the whole, like he, hours, like 36 <laughs> hours tapping his foot. Love it. I think that's a great idea. So, all right, so get rid of the, get rid of the filibuster and bring into, for the very first time, some kind of fill-a-dance. Fill-a-danster. Fill-a-danster battle, and that's that's the smart guy, dumb guy um, policy option. So take that Chuck Schumer and put it in your legislative agenda pipe. <laughs> well, you heard it here <laughs> first, folks. <laughs> hey, that ends our episode of Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. Leave us a review, share this with a friend, and uh, come back and listen to us again every Monday. Thanks. Thanks. Exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time.